This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript, the good parts, build web applications with Node.js, AngularJS in depth, and advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Watch Me Code. Have you been looking for regular, high-quality video screencasts on building JavaScript done by someone who really understands JavaScript? Derek Bailey's videos cover many of the topics we talk about on JavaScript Jabber and are up on the latest tools and tricks you need to write great JavaScript. He also covers language fundamentals, so there's plenty for everybody. Looking over the catalog, I got really excited, and I can't wait to watch them all. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash watchmecode. This episode is sponsored by Codeship.io. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time your test passed? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied into a nice continuous integration system? That's Codeship. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fuss-free, continuous delivery, check them out at Codeship.io. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to Widgmo.com and check them out. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 116 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. Joe Eames. Hey there. Aaron Frost. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have two guests, TJ Van Toll. Hello. And Burke Holland. Howdy. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? My name is Burke Holland. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I work for Telerik as a developer advocate focusing on... Kendo UI. And I'm TJ Van Toll. I'm from Lansing, Michigan. I work with Burke. I'm also a developer advocate for Telerik. In addition to that, I'm also a member of the jQuery team, and they focus mostly on jQuery UI. I've been doing that for a few years now. So you guys work together. That's pretty cool. We were hoping that this was a Sharks versus Jets, right, Jameson? Yeah. I, yeah. I thought there was going to be some, like, rap battles about which UI framework is better or something. It's kind of a letdown. I wanted to see some fights. I mean, we could still probably do the rap oh. battle if you're interested yes, in that. Yes, rap battle. <laughs> Please. <laughs> well, cool. Well, it says jQuery UI versus Kendo. We should probably get a definition of yes. what each of those are first and kind of how they're different. So, what's sure, the difference between those two Kendo guys? Alright, so Kendo UI is a UI framework. Uh, it's built in JavaScript um, and it's all of the standard components that you would expect to find in a UI framework, like sliders and tabs and things like that. And then it also contains uh, a mobile framework for building mobile apps, um, not not per se responsive apps, but mobile apps specifically like jQuery UI mobile or Ionic framework. Uh, and then it has a data visualization suite as well, so charts and graphs. Uh, and I should note that Kindle UI actually comes in two flavors. So there's a sort of a commercial version which contains some of these like crazy widgets like the scheduler, which is the calendar portion of Outlook just in your web browser. And then there's the core framework, which is a ton of the UI widgets from the website and then all of the mobile widgets as well. You say it's a framework. Does it have like a routing solution and like an international localization solution and all that stuff involved too? Yeah, it's a great question. It does. So it's, it's sort of um, full front end stack, if you will. It has routing views. Uh, layouts, like a whole spa framework. It has validation, globalization, all of the things that you would need to build a real front-end application, not just UI components. Awesome. That's cool. 
Yeah, and then to contrast that, um, jQuery UI is kind of one subset of what Kendo UI does, and the majority of jQuery UI is just a series of widgets. There's 12 widgets in the library right now, so things you think of like uh, autocomplete, dialogue, menus, uh, tabs, things like that. And then there's some other utilities in the, the library as well, like a, a series of effects. There's the widget factory, which is used to build all the jQuery UI widgets. But I think when people think of jQuery UI, they're primarily thinking of those core set of widgets. It seems like some of these components in Kendo and in jQuery UI have a lot to do with the, the back end, right? With autocomplete, you need to talk to a server to grab the stuff to complete it with. And that scheduling widget you were talking about, like that seems like that's pretty heavily tied to your data model. How opinionated are, are these widgets on what the data looks like and how it gets it from the server? In the case of Kindle UI, there's a data abstraction that we generally call the data source. And what it is, is it's an abstraction around, it's jQuery, it's the, it's the dollar sign dot Ajax at the very bottom, right? If you follow the turtles all the way down. What it does is it sort of allows you to define what your endpoint is, and then it allows you to specify sort of the structure or model of your data. Because yeah, things like the scheduler, they are very opinionated on the way that they need the data. And so Kindle UI provides you a way to either send it from the server in that form, or once you get it with the data source, then you can sort of transform it so that it looks right for presentation. Yeah, I think actually the autocomplete is a nice widget to talk about the difference between the two libraries, because whereas Kendo UI kind of gives you this data source, this tooling to interact with your backend, jQuery UI really isn't that opinionated in that sense. There's the autocomplete widget for jQuery UI has a source option, and you can configure it to do any number of things to talk to your backend. But jQuery UI doesn't go as far as like providing any sort of backend for you whatsoever. We'll show you, say, like sample code of how you could implement it and how we'll format requests for you. But for the most part, we're kind of hands off. Um, try to stick with just the core autocomplete functionality and leave the back end up to you. So they, so they both have ways to kind of hook into whatever back end you're using, it sounds like. Yeah, I think that in, in the case of Kindle UI, you know, while you can always use a straight jQuery Ajax call to get your data and then put it into your widget, the data source abstraction is the idea there is that it sort of provides that layer for you so that you just give it an endpoint and then the data source knows how to uh, talk to the widget. So once it gets the data, you don't have to do anything after that. Whereas, um, and TJ could speak more to this, in my experience, the jQuery UI, they sort of leave that up to you. TJ, are there actually abstractions for jQuery UI that do that on the data side? Not really. Basically, what the autocomplete widget will do is it'll just formulate up an AJAX request, so you'll hit the same $.AJAX API for you. But like Kendo UI will go even a step further. Like Kendo UI actually has server-side wrappers, so code that you can actually put in your, your Java code base, your .NET code base, and your PHP code base that'll interact even directly with your database, whereas jQuery I really tries to stay hands-off with that and just format up a request for you, and that's about it. Cool. So I'd kind of like to get you guys into talking about the strengths of your project. So we've we've had, um, I'd say, a good number of uh, framework people on recently. And um, a lot of, you know, they tell us, you know, this is when you would use our framework. So what are, you know, what when you guys are out, you know, hitting the pavement, talking to people about use our stuff, What when, what's the strength? Like, when do you say you should use Kendo and jQuery UI? What's the scenario? Like, what's, what's your guys' strengths? 
I can start with jQuery UI, and then I, I can let Burke talk about Kend UI a little more. I think jQuery UI makes a lot of sense, or it's, its best use case is when you just need a, a couple, a handful of widgets. So you're developing a site, and you need an autocomplete widget, and you need an autocomplete widget that you don't have to think about what browsers it's going to work in. You don't have to worry about that autocomplete being accessible. You just want something that you can drop in, has a nice, clean API that you can work with. The jQuery UI comes packaged with a number of themes, um, but even the default theme is kind of this uh, grayish hue. And that was even specifically designed so that you could drop it into any design. So if you have a website that's bright red, orange, whatever, you can just kind of drop it in and, and get an autocomplete that just works. And I, even though jQuery UI does more than that, like there's a series of widgets that they work really well together. I think jQuery works best in that use case that you just need these handful of widgets that you can drop in and just work out of the box. Okay. If I'm doing a Backbone app or uh, another framework app, I would use jQuery UI inside of that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I think okay. like both of these, Kendo UI actually has like a full MVVM data binding solution, but J- jQuery UI doesn't have anything like that. And I think both of these libraries kind of complement those those MVC libraries very well. So if you're using Backbone, Ember, or Autocomplete, then none of those projects ship you widgets you can use. They're, they're not giving you the dialogues, menus, things like that. So chances are you have to roll some of that behavior yourself, assuming you want to use it in the app. And these libraries just give you a, a straight-out-of-the-box thing that you can drop in and know that it's going to work, know that it's going to be accessible, and things like that. Cool. So to speak from the Kindle UI side, historically speaking, Kindle UI hasn't always been a fully open source project like uh, jQuery UI has always been. So in the beginning, there was a GPL license for Kindle UI, which is a copy left, and it's pretty restrictive. So th- we actually created a site, um, I think it's yeah, jQuery UI versus KindleUI.com, where we tried to sort of compare the two because that was the, pe- the question people were asking is, why would I use a commercial framework when there's an open source framework? Now, fortunately, we've been able to open source under Apache 2, which is extremely permissive, a ton of the widgets. So right now, there's there's strong overlap between Kindle UI and jQuery UI, but Kindle UI was really always designed for people who maybe got started with jQuery UI and got to a point where they were like, I need some pretty wild functionality in this app, right? Like, I need a tree view with drag and drop, and I don't, I can't code it myself. And so to be able to extend beyond that and provide some of these crazy widgets. And the other thing that Kendo UI tries to do is um, it really focuses on being compatible all the way back to IE7 still. So there's a lot of polyfilling and fallback that happens under the covers in Kendo UI. Um, TJ can talk more about what they do in jQuery UI, as I'm not familiar, but that was always the goal of the project was to really allow when HTML5 was, you know, the buzzword we you know, we would say it's sort of HTML5 for everyone. So give everybody these really nice animations and take care of all of the nasty plumbing that goes under the covers with polyfills. Mm. Yeah, and just to chime in with jQuery UI, it's it's kind of the same thing with jQuery UI on, on a lesser scope just because jQuery UI does less. But jQuery UI, we actually just dropped IE7 um, just with the most recent release. So we, we still work back to IE8, and we have a version that supports IE7. But... We still go back, I think, more further back support-wise than a lot of projects do. So when you guys dumped IE7, this is just me being curious, and I have a mic, so I'm going to ask. Um, did you guys, were you able to delete a lot of code, or like, 
how did that affect your overall performance and like what were all the things you were able to do when you jettisoned that support? There's actually not a ton of stuff in the library. There's there's a series of hacks, but we're talking about a small percentage of the code base. Most of the IE7 problems were actually with CSS because IE7 was the last IE with kind of the has layout craziness in CSS world. And so there were some kind of ugly hacks to work around that. And we had some some really cryptic IE7 bugs that were actually, we had a couple that we weren't even actually able to solve. And that was the majority of what went away. There were very few, just a handful of fixes that were actually in the JavaScript for IE7. Hey, TJ, just out of curiosity, what do you think the, like, what about if they dropped IE8? Would that make a significant dent in the code base? It would mean that we would be able to switch to jQuery 2.0, which would just by its very nature mean we could drop some code by just bumping that version up. But I think it's the same thing. There's there's a handful of fixes, but we're not talking some drastic thing where we, we work around all of this because building on top of jQuery, jQuery actually takes most of those concerns away from jQuery UI. But just switching to 2.0 would mean like dropping, I don't know, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's like 5K of gzip JavaScript, which is a good chunk. Yeah. Now, wait a second. I'm not sure if you guys have heard this, but Internet Explorer is evergreen now. Yes. <laughs> Whatever. Problem solved. You can say that, but people like to chop that line out, but there's still plenty of people that'll be on IE7 or IE8 forever. Yeah, so I know. I've got a question about the browser compatibility. I heard someone say at some point, and this may have been an exaggeration, that they were having to do more code for differences between Safari, Chrome, and Firefox than for the newer versions of IE. Is that true? Well, I can tell you that the biggest source of workarounds in the jQuery code base right now is for Android 2.3, and that's actually the thing. And because Android 2.3 is still distributed on, like, a, a whole lot of of devices, like it can't really leave jQuery core. Um, it, they're so, selling new phones with Android 2.3 on it. You can buy 2.3 phones? Yes. Yeah, cheap ones, like free ones, right? Yeah, exactly. Like smartphones? But the cutoff for jQuery 2.0 was going to be ECMAScript 5 support, that basically if you have it, if you have ECMAScript 5, you would be supported by jQuery 2.0, but Android 2.3 actually doesn't, so we had to make an exception for that. So is Android 2.3 That's interesting. the new Internet Explorer? <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's, it's the new iOS 6. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I was actually, I took one of the kids to Scout Camp this last week, and on the way we stopped at like a Dollar General to pick up some, you know, like beef jerky and stuff, because you can't camp without beef jerky, you know. Totally, yeah. Yeah, and so, and then we were walking past the end of this aisle, and it was in Dollar General. There's this huge rack of feature phones, essentially, but they're all running Android, and it's all 2.3, and there's like nine of them that you could choose from. So, I mean, this is still a major, major problem. Dude, I buy all my phones at the General gas station, so don't talk trash. (laughs) (laughs) Part of the problem, Aaron. I know, I'm sorry. When you need beef jerky and a phone, real quick. For those times, right? <laughs> Absolutely, man. And sometimes you're just in a hurry, and you need a cell phone that nobody can track and a bag of beef jerky, and you're out. <laughs> <laughs> so That's true. That's like the survivalist combination. 
a cell phone that you can sideload all of your nefarious apps onto for your, you know, throwaway purposes. Yeah. So with some of the other framework folks we've talked to, like when you talk to them about their framework, they're in love with it and they can talk about all day, but they don't actually use it. Like they don't write apps with it. So do you two write apps with jQuery UI and with Kendo or are you guys evangelists and don't, don't write apps with it? Like, how how much they have to say yes now? <laughs> no, no, I, I want them to be honest. Like this is the podcast where we get to talk about that stuff. So yeah, let me be. Uh, let me start this one. I'll be completely transparent. I use Kindle UI and I, because I know it very well and I'm comfortable with it. Um, Kindle UI also has Angular integrations that I talk about a lot. I do not use Angular, and this is me just being forthright. I'm a big proponent of letting people use what they want. So while I like to use Kindo in just its raw flavor, because that's what I know, so I'm comfortable with it, even though I talk about Angular a lot, I don't actually use Angular. Okay. Yeah, and I can say that kind of the the nature of our job, we work as developer advocates, which means I don't work on any production applications anymore, so I don't write a whole lot of stuff that the public world sees. I make a lot of demos and such. And I do use both jQuery UI and Kendo UI and like the, the demos and the stuff that, that I produce, but I'm, I'm not really out building big software apps anymore. So while I could tell you I would probably use these frameworks, I, I just don't build that sort of thing currently. Cool. TJ, where do you get, where do you get like your ideas for the next version of jQuery UI? Where do those ideas come from? What's your best source of this is the next feature we're going to put in? It depends. So, like, things that the community wants from the project, things that we want to do internally, um, it, it all kind of depends. I can tell you the next version of jQuery UI, we're working on rewriting a couple of the existing widgets, the button widget and also the date picker widget. The date picker widget is actually an interesting story. It's kind of telling of the project as a whole because jQuery UI started as this it's basically a eclectic group of plugins that were from the community at large. Because when jQuery got big, there was this mass of plugins that, that hit the market. I mean, you can still find plenty of Google posts of top 100 jQuery plugins and such. And jQuery UI started as this goal of bringing together these plugins, giving them a common API, giving them a, a common way of working. And it's something that the project has strived to bring some consistency to this plugin kind of throughout its existence. And the last big holdout plugin is actually Date Picker. Uh, Date Picker actually kind of being it hurt by its own success because it's easily the most common widget in the library. It's we know from download statistics, people love the Date Picker. People use it a lot, but from a maintenance standpoint, it's also just crazy. It doesn't use any of the conventions that the library has come up with recently. So that's kind of the next thing we're working on is bringing some sanity to Date Picker and to make it more extensible and make some of the other widgets work together. And that's kind of one thing that we're working on right now. So some of it's internal organization, some some of it's community feedback, um, but it all kind of depends. Okay. Well, now I know in the case of, of Kendo UI, since I serve as interim product manager for them for a while, that, you know, Kendo UI is a lot different than jQuery UI in that there are like 22 people total that do nothing but work on Kendo UI. So this includes like support resources, people doing documentation, technical writing, and engineers. And so there's this very specific product roadmap. And the way that we get that is a lot of different ways, but it's primarily feedback from the people that currently use Kindle UI. And then what we observe as being 
um, very popular in the community. And so an example of this is we, Kindle UI is used by heavily by a lot of really large enterprises. And so we will go out and talk to them and do like actual interviews and say, what are you looking for? And like 85% this last time around were like, we're standardizing on Angular. We need Angular. So we need Kindle UI to just work with Angular. Um, and I don't know if you guys have seen this phenomenon pop up as well. And so, you know, at that point, whether or not we think Angular is, you know, a good thing is sort of irrelevant when the customers and everybody is saying, we're doing this, you know, where, where does Kindle UI fall? We want to use your scheduler, but we, we can't currently with Angular. Right. And so we then prioritize and we make it important and we say, we're going to add Angular support in for Kindle UI, which we're going to add to this next release and like officially support not just Kindle UI, but also Angular. So that when people submit support tickets that include Angular code, we can support that as well. Gotcha. But that's sort of how we do our, our roadmaps and features. It's really based on feedback from the community and from people that, that use Kindle UI. Hmm. Sounds challenging. So, yeah. It, it really is. It's hard to, to really figure out what stuff is important and, you know, what the vocal minority is versus what the actual need is. Um, and there's a lot of times where people are suggesting, somebody will suggest something really, really good, and you're like, oh, man, I can't believe I don't have that. But then you can't find anybody else who has that problem. And so you have a really hard time justifying, you know, putting it on the, the roadmap as something to do. So, so we, you kind of touched on this just now when you talked about the Angular support, but it, it seems like Kendo UI and jQuery UI are like different branches of the tree of life of JavaScript frameworks versus the Angular and Ember and the kind of more traditional full app frameworks. So, I mean, obviously they're trying to use Kendo UI together with Angular. Is this a trend that you see continuing, or are people just kind of sprinkling these into server-side pages or something like that? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, and I can say that from both jQuery UI and Kendo UI that we absolutely do see that. I know from uh, just from working on jQuery UI that we get requests from people using any of those MVC star frameworks, so your Backbones, your, your Embers, your Angulars, things like that. I think it's a fairly common use case just... Because like I mentioned earlier, these, these frameworks, Ember is really not about giving you date pickers or building calendars. It's a slightly different focus. And so from jQuery UI's perspective, what we try to do is we don't directly integrate with any of these frameworks directly. But what we do try to do is we try to make the integrations possible. So that might mean structuring our code so that it's, it's easily extensible or so that you can bridge it but not necessarily directly integrate with those frameworks. That makes sense. Yeah, and Kindle UI, on the other hand, started out as just UI, and then all of these other pieces were added in to allow it to be a complete framework. So everything that Angular does, Kindle UI also does. Uh, however, it wasn't until Angular came around that I saw people really starting to go like whole hog on a front-end environment, right? Like before that, they were, it really was pretty much piecemeal. And so that's another one of the phenomenons of Angular, really, is that people are now feel like they have a frame of reference in which to work entirely on the client side. Uh, it sucks. I wanted to hear some more Jameson stuff. Joe, do you have any questions? Yeah, so earlier on you talked about like some crazy components that people go- turn to Kendo UI for. I was just kind of curious to see you know, what that list of really awesome, crazy, full-featured components might be that Kendo UI has. Yeah, so the most popular component in Kindle UI, hands down, without a doubt, no questions asked, is the grid. 
And grids, we actually just wrote an article about this. Um, grids are used by people to do things as simple as repeat data all the way up to your entire application is just a page with a grid. <laughs> uh, some, 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 and I've seen, I see that a lot, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, grids are ubiquitous, you know, definitely, especially on the website and in forms over data apps. And they're really the fastest way to get an interface out to people. And plus, it's an interface people already understand, right? Like, they, they're like, that kind of looks like Excel. I know what that does. Right. Um, and then some of the other ones are, are the editor, which is sort of like a, well, it is like an ace editor, if you're familiar with that, um, but allows you to format and, like, copy-paste from Word and, and do things like that, format the HTML. Uh, we talked about the scheduler. Another one is the tree view, which is a tree view but has drag-and-drop added in. The upload is quite popular. And then there's some kind of crazy components in the database suite. Like there's a diagramming tool, which is like Visio, mm -hmm. but in your browser. And then there's uh, where we just uh, released a beta, but there's a Gantt chart now as well. Oh, really? Yeah, we're talking about some pretty crazy interactive stuff happening in the browser um, especially on the charting and diagramming side. Uh, and you can imagine how difficult that is to make that work back to IE7, right? Like in Chrome, it's everything's all awesome. But when you talk about IE7, like the stuff that you have to do to make things work in IE7 is just Yeah, it sounds ridiculous. Crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, especially, especially the the charting stuff because the kind of UI database it'll it'll do Canvas. What are the other ones? It'll do Canvas SVG, but then it'll also fall back to VML, which is kind of this proprietary thing that IE dreamed up, but actually serves as a decent fallback for that. So it crazy, yeah. So crazily enough, you can be using your pie charts, bar charts, all these these charts, and they still work back in old IE because somehow this they can be mapped to this proprietary language and still work. So you're telling me the sick people at your companies made some poor developer learn VML? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I feel so sad for that developer. We should give props to Seto because he did he did a lot of that stuff in the beginning. Him and like one other dude were doing all of the VML stuff and SVG as well. And VML is like a total black box, right? Like you just like you throw it in and you're like, please, dear God, come out the other side working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, your companies are sick, but good job on that guy. Seriously, that's awesome. Yeah. So do you actually like see a lot of customer implementations then in the course of your work? Yeah, we we do. Uh, we have a lot of customers that we talk to on a day-to-day -day basis. And I don't know if I should thread any names. I will say, if you did your taxes online this year with a, a prominent tax site, you were using Kendo UI. <laughs> but a lot of times, a lot of times we see it but you don't know that's what it is until you look under the covers because the developers have done a fantastic job of styling it so that it looks like their product and not like Kindo UI. Like I'm constantly blown away by what people can do with our widgets to make to customize it. So they take the functionality, but they go in and do some like serious CSS hacking and it just looks gorgeous. It's really impressive. All right. So that makes me think uh, I want to ask a couple of other things. So first off, you're talking about the grid, right? And people building their entire interface with grids. I imagine that in the course of your work, then you've seen a few that just really made you shudder and a few that just you couldn't believe that they could get that to make that work and do it so well, right? Right. Absolutely, man. The one that I see a lot is I'll have, um, I'll talk to somebody and they'll say, the grid is really slow. 
And one of the things that we sort of advertise, because it's a commercial product, is that like, hey, our grid's fast. And we have some perf benchmark tests that we do. And so, you know, we'll go in and look at it and we'll say, okay, what are you doing? And they're like, well, I'm loading the data in and then displaying it, but I'm, I'm using, I'm paging through 10 rows at a time. But what they're actually doing is they're throwing the entire 10,000 rows into the DOM and then paging through records in the DOM, mm. right? And it, the browser is not a database. <laughs> um, so it doesn't, it doesn't like you to treat it like that with wasn't jQuery. The, even wasn't the DOM a database initially? No, I'm just kidding. Was it? <laughs> oh, I was like, oh that, that would be more fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's so slow. I'm Some, just kidding. Sorry, this history. Somebody yeah, I'm needs, sorry, bro. Somebody needs to tweet that right now. The browser is not a database. Yeah. But the thing about jQuery is that jQuery really lets you use the browser like it is a database, right? Like you could throw stuff into DOM and just manipulate it all day long. But the problem is, you know, we've seen with the frameworks like React, anytime that you are updating the DOM like that, it just cannot keep up. Um, and the, the slowdowns in browsers are not JavaScript based. They are almost, it's almost entirely DOM and CSS. Um, and so we've also seen people though that I've seen, I had a guy one time show me, he had a grid that was paging like several million rows, but he was doing all the paging server side and they had some like crazy Scala backend that was doing their services and it was crazy fast how you could move through millions of records and sort them and group them and do aggregations on the front end while the back end, which is where all that stuff should be happening, was taking care of all the heavy lifting. Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, and to give one more example, KendoUI also has a mobile framework as well, and one of the widgets components in the framework is is a scroller with the idea you perform a, a more performance scroll on, on mobile devices and so you get like the, the pull to refresh Twitter type behavior. Right, right. And it's kind of the same thing that sometimes people use those sort of things to kind of build these endless scroll lists with it. And they don't really manage the DOM or really think about it. And I think you see this online, or at least I see it online quite a bit, where people don't do a good enough job cleaning up after themselves. For instance, like as you just keep building onto this DOM, and then at some point the browser just can't handle it and just either slows to a crawl or even crashes in some extreme cases if you really if you're really showing a lot of stuff right. I was curious Bert, because you talked about um, some amazing implementations where people have styled the components really well and just done a great job is there anybody you want to call out ooh that's a good one you know the University of Wisconsin did a mobile app using Kindo UI mobile and did a, a really fine job of styling it. And using sort of the iOS look and feel, but bringing like the Badger Red in and making it look like it was, you know, part of their app and not so much part of Kindle UI. Um, I was really impressed by that. Um, one of the tedious things about working with Kindle UI is we work with a lot of customers that are, you know, large enterprises. And so I, I don't know if I can necessarily say, uh, off the top of my head without looking and making sure that it's okay for me to do it. I'm curious about uh, roadmaps and what's ahead for the two different products. Uh, TJ, could you talk maybe a little bit about what's ahead for uh, jQuery UI? So, yeah, jQuery UI, to talk a little bit about the roadmap, the, I mentioned earlier that the date picker widget is undergoing a rewrite, and the idea behind the rewrite is to make the date picker more extensible so you can build things on top of it easier because the current date picker is kind of a mess to, to build on top of. You kind of, you're stuck with what you get. Um, the other thing we're doing with the date picker rewrite is using, uh, I guess to take a step back, at the moment we use 
this project known as Globalize, which is also a project maintained by the jQuery Foundation. And we have embedded in the projects different locales from around the world. So if you want a date picker that works with Chinese or Japanese locales, and there's hundreds of them. But the problem with that is that we've been stuck kind of maintaining that locale data ourselves. And so we're switching over to use a project known as CLDR, which is this kind of community-managed locale data to provide a, a global calendar that people can use across cultures. We're working on that. The other thing we're working on is we're working with the Google team and some others to bring a pointer events polyfill to the project. Um, a lot of people, jQuery is kind of notorious for not working without a shim on, on browsers that use touch events. So there's a shim you can drop in to make it work, but out of the box, jQuery UI doesn't work on, um, or its interactions don't work on Android and iOS devices. And there's kind of a long story behind that, but kind of we, we have a really big problem with the touch event model. So we want to work towards writing a pointer event, writing two pointer events in the code, and then using a polyfill so that it works everywhere. And that's some of the things that we're working on at the moment. Hmm. So I just found out about CDL, CLDR like uh, yesterday as I was trying to do some conversions for really, I just want to go between the JavaScript date string and like an actual time zone ID. Turns out to be insanely difficult. Yes. In ways that I would not have imagined. And I happened to come across that both Chrome and Firefox have, of course, not completely the same implementations of an INTL object. Is that a future help for that kind of localization? Or do you know anything about that? I actually don't know anything about an INTL object or any sort of thing that the browser provides for this sort of thing, so I'm not sure. Okay. Well, I don't know yeah. much about it. I just read the Mozilla page on it yesterday. I can say on the Kindo UI side, I have no idea what happens. I just use Kindo Date, and I hope to God that everything formats just right. Please work. Right. Oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I trust that somebody, somebody on the engineering team has already figured this out for me. Hold your breath, refresh. It worked. Yeah. So one of the things I think would be interesting to talk about since you guys are both working on basically widget frameworks, right, to kind of oversimplify matters. A while ago, there was an article called No More JS Frameworks that was a topic of discussion around here and kind of hit the interwebs. And um, I'm pretty sure even Ann Coulter has recently said that the popularity of JS Frameworks is an indication of the moral decay America. Um, <laughs> but one of the points that he makes in his article is the fact that we have to keep rewriting the components that we build every time a new JS framework comes out and we swap, switch over to it, you know? So we were starting using jQuery, using all these jQuery components, then uh, people started with Backbone and Knockout, and now we're flipped over to Angular, and now they got to rewrite everything. So as library builders, what is your guys' opinion on that and dealing with that and how to handle that and how the industry is going to move forward with constantly new JS frameworks coming out? Yeah, I can take this. I, I have some pretty strong feelings about this. So to me, it kind of comes down to developer productivity. Because sure, you don't need a JavaScript framework to build anything. You can use the tools the browser has, and you can build a web app with that, certainly. I mean, under the hood, all of the frameworks are doing something that you can just do manually. What these libraries are providing for you is kind of out-of-the-box solutions that you can just use. So you don't have to worry about when I build that autocomplete, 
How am I going to implement the keyboard controls? How am I going to style the thing? How am I going to write the events so as I type something completes and I, all of the different options associated with this for all of these things. And I mean, that's even for an autocomplete, much less something like a grid where you have to worry about, well, how do I sort based up the columns? How do I group and aggregate these things? The libraries are about providing value in terms of these abstractions to make your life easier as a developer. So if you're the type of person that likes to spend the time to roll your own solutions to this and you want to take the time to do it, then absolutely, that's that's fine and the more power to you. But these libraries, if you take just even the simple widgets to even the more complex solutions, it's just going to save you time and hassle. The other thing you get is kind of accessibility support for free. So if to take the autocomplete example, you don't have to worry about those keyboard shortcuts working or whether the options for your autocomplete are going to be read for screen readers. You just get a component you can drop in and just feel confident that it's going to work. And browser support as well. You can feel confident that it's going to work in basically all the browsers you would care to support. Hmm. I can speak to this from a Kindle UI side and what I typically see, but I think that the idea of rolling your own framework or not needing one, or we often call it hasn't been invented here syndrome sometimes, uh, is that, I, and Hanselman said this best, is that it's, it's just a good idea, but, you know, at the end of the day, you sort of sit down and you're like, okay, build me a date picker in two hours, or I'm just going to go use this one here, which is already done. Uh, so it just comes down to productivity. I mean, in Telerik's case, with Kendo UI, it's not like they just sat down and said, hey, let's build a, a UI framework because it's easy. Um, it, they had a decade of UI experience. That's what Telerik does is user interface. And so there's like 10 years of really, really rough, hard lessons that are sitting behind these widgets. Um, and the only way to really learn those those lessons is just to be burned. And so a lot of times people... You know, our, our customers are partnering us and they're, they're looking to standardize on things. And that's exactly what they don't want to do is they don't want to have to rewrite code and maintain. They want us to partner with them and help them do that. And so if they decide we're going to use Angular now, but they were using the date picker before, then they need that date picker to continue to work in Angular. And we need to be able to provide that for them. So do you guys feel like the explosion of JS frameworks is a good thing or a bad thing? And as component builders, are we getting better at dealing with, you know, not having to rewrite the same components as new frameworks come out, or is that not getting any better? I think that in terms of the new frameworks, the rising tides float all boats. And so, and all the things that we're learning in new framework, frameworks like React really affect everybody. And we can all learn from these things and implement some of them in our project or provide integrations with them in our project. So every time we learn something new, it sort of elevates everybody's game just a little bit. Yeah, and there's specific examples of that. I mean, if, especially if you look at, at Kenda UI, just a few years ago when you wanted to build HTML in your JavaScript, you would concatenate strings together to do it. And then we had these templating libraries, things like underscore and such come out. And now Kenda UI directly supports templating. It has its own templating engine. So we've kind of learned from things like that. And as these good ideas come forward, other libraries can learn from it. So even though there's these this explosion of library, explosion of choices, I think developers tend to find the things that work, and those things kind of get elevated and get pushed out. So we we get the best of the best of the ideas that come out of these things. And let me add, do add here that I think the the thing that's most important that we can all do as developers and anybody that's working in a framework is to try to be very careful not to lock in to any certain area, so that when somebody comes along and says, "I want to use Angular," you don't have to look them in, in the eye and say. 
you can't, right? right. Um, and and that's that's always the trade off, right? Do, how, can I provide this functionality without locking you into doing something a specific way, which really then takes away your freedom to be innovative and actually build applications the way that you need to build apps, right? Yeah, and both projects try to do these in different ways. Like jQuery UI, for instance, we really strive, one of the important goals of the project is to make it extensible. So we get people that have absolutely crazy requests for for widgets. They want to integrate it into whatever. They want such and such options. So our general approach is to just make these things extensible and pluggable so that you can drop them in and you can make them work. So I think, Joe, kind of talking about what your question was, I think that um, another reason that we rewrite widgets every time a new framework comes out, every time Ember's here or Angular's here or, you know, now React is here, um, I think the reason that we do that is because we don't, like, some people don't mind this, some people do, some people are like build Nazis and they hate having extra dependencies. So if they can get away with just having, you know, Angular as an example, just having their widgets built in Angular, they don't have to add the jQuery and jQuery UI dependencies to their app, then they would rather do that. So I think it's, and it comes under preference because some people don't care and some people want to just, like what you guys quoted Hanselman, I want it done in, in two hours and if it's not, I, I want whatever the industry uses, you know. The, so it kind of, I think it just kind of depends. Yeah, and, and I think, the one thing about that is kind of the mobile explosion has made people care a lot more about bandwidth and the amount of JavaScript and code that they're sending to, to users. And I'd say if I had one complaint that people have of any of these libraries or really any UI framework in general is that they're too big or too bloated or do too much. And I think that claim, like I hear it a lot, but I, I think it's a little bit crazy because both of these projects, if you look at, Kendui, uh, jQuery, or even any of these other UI frameworks, they're very modularly written. So if you want to use Kendui UI's autocomplete or even jQuery UI's autocomplete, I mean, that's a very isolated piece of functionality. You can just grab that. You can grab it with AMD. You can use that, and you don't have to ship everything Kendui UI does. And people freak out to learn that Kendui UI in its entirety is a meg of JavaScript. And people hear that and go like, oh my god, a meg of JavaScript? What in the world? But what you don't realize is, well, yeah, Kendui UI does an enormous amount of stuff. There's over 40 widgets. There's all this localization. There's data visualization. There's a full mobile framework. And if bandwidth is a consideration for your app, it's really kind of irresponsible in a way to just ship that entire thing to your users. And you can use uh, Kendi UI and jQuery UI both have download builders. They both have AMD support. Um, it's very easy to pluck out the pieces of functionality that you need so that you're not shipping this monolithic thing to your users in your production apps. Paul Irish had a good point on this as well. He's like, you know, if you feel like your JavaScript is too big, remove an image. <laughs> exactly, right? One image later, you're good. Right. Well, the right, average... Exactly, yeah. Yeah, the average website now, as of last month, now contains over one meg of images. Wow. <laughs> and that's the average site. So usually there's some other, and it's not just images. There's also, I mean, making sure you're caching your assets appropriately, making sure you're reducing HTTP requests, you're minifying your JavaScript, you're concatenating your JavaScript together. Same thing with CSS. I mean, often things like that give you far bigger bang for your buck than trying to micro-optimize your JS framework or your choices of plugins or widgets or whatever the case may be. 
Do you, yeah, do you guys remember uh, Jake Archibald wrote that article about the async tag, the HTML5 async tag, uh-uh. async attribute? He essentially was talking about, like, what's the fastest way to load scripts and get your app to run? And he goes through this whole thing, and he talks about async, and at the very end, the conclusion is concatenate and minify your scripts and put them all in one include at the bottom of your, of your page. Still the fastest way to do it. So I had talked to Jake, and he had said sometimes people are zipping up so much, even when it's like all in one file, that sometimes putting it in one can slow it down for mobile. Like he said, maybe a couple is okay. It really depends on your app and how much you're throwing in there. For instance, maybe you have one script that you share across multiple pages, so it it would kind of behoove you to put all of that shared stuff in one file so that can be cached, so when you visit other parts of your app or other pages on your site, that's already in the cache. The other thing is that mobile browsers have notoriously low cache sizes. There's some limit that depends on the browser itself, but I've seen at one point, and I don't know if this is still the case, but on iOS Safari, it just would not cache any file that was greater than 16K, and it would just completely ignore any cache headers if it was bigger than that. And I think it's a little larger than that, but it's still to the point where you, you might not necessarily want to ship a mega file, like a, an extreme-sized file. But I think the general sense is still two or three scripts, sure, but not this like 15 or 20 script tags that tends to be very common in websites. Um, I think according to the last data I saw, the average site is now including, or like the average site in the top uh, uh, like 10,000 sites is now including like 19 JavaScript resources on the page. So I'm going to say this dude's name wrong, um, but he's awesome, so I feel bad doing this. Ilya Grigoric, one of the Chrome Dev Rel guys, he gave a talk last year at the um, Chrome Dev Summit, and he talked about breaking out your your JavaScript into two pieces. One, which is I can't remember the the exact idioms he used, but they were they were money. When he was giving the talk, I was like, "Wow, this is perfect." And some of it was like you need it to if it doesn't start painting the page until all the JavaScript is loaded, it's going to look really bad, especially on mobile. So you need to have a part that bootstraps your app and that needs to download fast and first and then the rest of your app can kind of load subsequently and so i thought that was a really interesting way to look at what pieces of your javascript should run quick to give the illusion that it's working as opposed to just waiting for it to block until it downloads this huge javascript file it's actually a really good recommendation and the same applies to css that you should try to put kind of your critical css in the head and some optimizations even talk about not even serving a script tag, but just tossing your JavaScript and tossing your CSS inline just in, in uh, script and style blocks for that first paint to be instantaneous. So you don't even have to do an HTTP request to serve to get your resource for that those critical assets. But I think for the majority of developers, that's kind of an ultra-optimization. I think most people aren't dealing with the point that their blocker is getting to that fast paint in the first handful of milliseconds, that they're still including a whole ton of script tags. And there's, I I think, more practical optimizations that your average developer can do before you have to get to that point. True. I agree. Speaking of crazy optimizations, and somebody from the Gmail team may listen to this and correct me, but I believe that the way Gmail handles this is they do, Aaron, what you were talking about, they bootstrap the thing, and then they send all the other JavaScript down, comment it out, right? So it's just text, and it doesn't get parsed. And then when they need it, 
they uncomment that section of the JavaScript and they execute it. Huh? Yeah. Wow. That's pretty legit. That's pretty awesome. I don't even know how you would do that, but that's cool. Yeah, I could be wrong on that, but I swear I read, I read an article somewhere there talking about how Gmail optimizes to be so fast. If you can do yeah, that, they, I want to learn how to. That's crazy. Yeah, they, they used to do that, and I don't know if it's it's still the case anymore. But, with, I mean, they just send it down as text so the JavaScript interpreter doesn't get it. And then basically you take the contents of that and then you just inject it into a, a script tag. And you can still cache because you can still cache that file, that text resource that, that you're getting. But then you just basically take the text contents of that, remove the, the first and last characters to uncomment the thing, and then just toss it in a script tag. Hmm. I love it. A lot. Well, we've been going for quite a while, so maybe it's time to start wrapping it up. Is there any final questions before we do picks? Not for me. Does anybody have the number for the guy who's in charge of Skype? That's my only outstanding. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to make Skype one of my picks, so yeah. <laughs> you should totally do that. <laughs> Skype, disrupt, <laughs> disrupting communication everywhere. Yep. But the one last thing I want to talk about is, so if you actually want to contribute to either jQuery UI or Kender UI, um, there's a number of ways that you can actually do that. A lot of people, when, when they say, I want to contribute to open source, their, their first instinct is to just jump into the bug tracker and let's find the hardest bug and just go ahead and tackle it. But I want to tell people that that's usually not the greatest idea because the, the bug trackers, the bugs that are actually open, usually there's some reason that bug is open and hasn't been fixed. Either it's a really hard technical challenge or there's some logistical reason that it can't be tackled. Um, so if you want to get involved, one of the great ways to do it is just... Uh, it's just to help out, like, support-wise, things like Stack Overflow questions, um, um, assisting others using the library, uh, writing about the library, writing blog posts, um, helping others in any way you can. I think that's a great way to to kind of get to know what people are trying to do with the project, get a sense for, for how the project gets maintained. And then over time, you can get more familiar with the project and start to work on the actual code and submitting uh, fixes and documentation and things like that. Cool. Yeah, and let me just also point out, if I could, um, I totally agree with what TJ said. Um, as far as Kindle UI goes, it's you know you can find it via Google easy enough. Kindle UI Core is the Apache 2 open source version. So if you just Google Kindle UI Core, you will get to the download page. And if you want to search, um, I could give you the GitHub URL. We'll put it in the show notes, but um, lead straight to the GitHub repo as well. Um, and we're also same, right? Open an issue, submit a pull request. And we have people do that all the time. You know, somebody sent something the other day and was like, hey, this doesn't work great with handlebars. Here's how you fix it. And we were like, awesome. Right? Helps everybody. Should we do our, our picks? Yep. Let's do picks. AJ, do you want to go first? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> so today, I'm going to pick something a little unusual for me. I'm going to do some style picks. So... Um, like many of you, our listeners, I am a humble man who occasionally gets a haircut. And I like to go to hair schools to get my haircut because, so I don't gamble, but I like, I like the idea of it, like the thrill of it, right? So what I do is when I get my haircut, I go to the hair schools. And that's an honest gamble because you're either going to get a pretty good cut or a pretty bad one. And I kind of like not knowing what it's going to be and then just dealing with the consequences for the next week and a half as it, you know, fills out the rest of the way. But as part of this, I always get a different hair product pretty much every time I get my hair cut. So they'll give me the, the different paste or the pomade or the gel or, or whatever it is. 
And I found that the one that I like the best is called Control Paste by Avita. And it just, for me, it's the right hold, the right shine, the right everything. It smells good too. I have really thick and fairly coarse hair. So if you're that kind of person, then you might like it too. And I'll include a link to that. And also, in case you didn't get the memo, like five years ago, people started wearing colored Argyle socks um, and mismatch and like all that stuff. And now, for those of you that are a little bit more conservative like myself, now is the appropriate time, now that everybody else has been doing it for five years, that you can safely do it without looking like a hipster. And on Amazon, there's these really cheap socks that have a couple of different Argyle blends and whatnot. You can get a, I think it's a 12 pack for like 24 bucks. So a pretty screaming deal because on all the hipster sites, if you want to get colored Argyle socks, you have to pay like $20 per pair. So I'm going to pick that, uh, as well. And I'll have links to both of those. Awesome. Okay. <sighs> can I go yeah, next? Aaron, please. All right. I got four picks. And the first one's totally self-serving. Again, I, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm finishing up a, a course on Egghead.io about grunt builds for Angular projects. So if you're kind of like what Burke was talking about or what TJ was talking about, if you're one of those people that ships, you know, a hundred script tags on your project and you want to learn how to build it, this course will kind of walk you through doing an Angular grunt build to get it all into one file for your CSS and your JavaScript. And anyway. The next two picks are both books. One is called The Masters of Doom. Has anyone read this? No. No? Okay. No. Um, so The Masters of Doom, it's about John Romero and John Carmack, the guys who did Doom and Quake, and currently Carmack's doing Oculus Rift. So it just kind of walks you through these, you know, it starts with these 16-year-old kids and, like, this insane ability to understand code back when you were teetering between the Atari, the Commodore, and this new thing that IBM was thinking about putting out. And so, and it takes you through their story. And it was, I couldn't put it down. It was a very, very intriguing and inspiring book. Uh, it's called Masters of Doom, if anyone's looking at it. Part of the reason that it is so, that it's so good, it's such a good read is on Audible, Will Wheaton is the narrator. So anytime he's narrating a book, it's going to be epic. Uh, I'm going to skip the next one because I realize I did it in the past. It's, it's a book called The Martian, another a really good book. And then I'm going to come up to a new build plugin. That we, at, So I work at a company called Domo. We have a huge app, over 125,000 lines of JavaScript. And um, we have a, a, a huge grunt build. And we took out one of the developers here named Kent C. Dodds. He took out – we use ng-min on our Angular. And our build went, he replaced ng-min with a new plugin called ng-annotate, which does the same stuff. It took our build from four minutes to one and a half minutes. And so, um, we didn't even realize that that one, the ng-min was, was, was taking so long. So ng-annotate, anyone doing a grunt angular build using ng-min, look at ng-annotate because it was like amazing for our build process. So yeah, those are my picks. Awesome. Okay, I'll go next, and then we'll have our guests go last. As I have said many times in the past, I'm a huge soccer fan, so I'm obviously going to be picking the U.S. soccer team and Tim Howard, even though they lost yesterday against Belgium. Played their hearts out, and Tim Howard was a monster, setting the World Cup record for most saves in a finals game, so or a non-group 
game, group play game. So props to the U.S. soccer team, even though it does indicate the moral decay of, of uh, the United States. <laughs> I've also been playing a game that I had installed a long time ago and haven't played for a while and just kind of got back into it. And it's really fun and it's free, so that's even better. Is Path of Exile. It's like what Diablo 3 should have been without the $60 charge. So I really enjoy that game. Having a lot of fun with it. And the last pick is a card game called Council of Verona. I played this at a board gaming convention a few months ago and just barely got my copy, picked it up from Amazon. It's a really fun card game for two to five people. Plays fairly quickly, but uh, it's based on the setting of um, Romeo and Juliet with the Montagues and the Capulets, and uh, they're kind of fighting, and you're you're kind of manipulating the groups, trying to you're laying down cards and trying to manipulate the groups so that you win. It's a really fun game. Cool strategy, but easy to learn. Have a lot of fun with it, and it's uh, pretty cheap on Amazon. So those are my picks. Uh, let's go to Burke. What are your picks? Uh, okay, I've got two. Uh, the first one is uh, I clicked on an ad in Gmail for the first time two days ago, ever. Wow. <laughs> and it was for uh, men's pants that are made out of sweatpant material, but they look like dress pants. Uh, kind of like pajama jeans. Uh, it's called... <laughs> I don't even I don't even wear dress pants, but it was compelling enough to have a look. So it's called Beta Brands, bro. Uh, are they? I don't know. Are they in the mail? Like, are you already there? You already bought a couple. There, I, I didn't, but it was only because it was cost prohibitive. They're like one hundred and ten dollars, oh, which is a lot oh. for a pair of sweatpants. What? Never mind. Uh, they look good. I'm telling you, you gotta check it out. My other one is a little bit more useful. It's a Mac app that I use constantly, and it's called Sip. SIP, you guys know this, this app? It's free, but it didn't always, wasn't always free because I know I paid for it at one point in time, but it's a color picking app for Mac and it, all it does is, uh, gives you a dropper essentially and you can, and it magnifies the area underneath the dropper so that you can select your color and then it'll copy it to your clipboard in like any one of nine billion different color modes, most of which I don't even recognize. They must be used by like people that use Photoshop, but I use it constantly, and it is a fantastic app. I can go last then. Uh, I have a couple picks, all books. The first one is by, we talked about him earlier, but Ilya Grigoric, and hopefully I didn't murder his name either, but he has a book called uh, High Performance Browser Networking, which is actually really good. It digs into the network stack and kind of what web developers need to know about the web, the network stack which is something I, I don't think a whole lot of at least people coming from a web background know too much about it. They didn't. Um, so pretty good introduction to that. Um, the other ones I'll pick, I uh, just finished this book called Nothing to Envy, Ordinary Lives in North Korea, which was actually a fascinating book because it didn't approach North Korea or like a lot of history books. The, they tend to approach these situations from a political standpoint, but it talked about just ordinary people, ordinary life. So what do people eat in North Korea? What do they do? What's the propaganda like on a day to day basis? And just thought it was a, a fascinating discussion of the, the country and the background of those people. Hmm. My last pick is Divergent, which just had a movie that came out about it a few months ago. The movie I did not think was very good, but the book series behind it, it's a trilogy, is actually really good. If you like the Hunger Games at all, it's its kind of a similar post-apocalyptic type story. But it's very good. So even if you saw the movie and you didn't like it, it's worth checking out the book series. 
Cool. Awesome. That's called the Divergent? Yeah, Divergent. All right, I'm going to go get it because I'm looking for another good book. I just started reading it. I'm and, only one chapter in. It's, and? It's, well, I think it's going to be good. Like, I, I choose to read books based on whether or not I like the movie. Like, I read Hunger Games and the Host because I thought the movie was compelling, and I bet, I was like, I bet that the book's even better. So, my guess on Divergent is that the book is even better than the movie. The only thing that I'm kind of, like, meh about is the way that the society is divided up is just a little, doesn't follow any of the normal divisions that you get in. Eh, uh, it's hard yes. to explain. Spoiler alert. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I, it does get explained, but uh, I can't I can't reveal anything. Spoiler alert. It's not really explained in the movie. Stop the podcast if you don't want a right. spoiler. It's a trilogy, no. though, so it doesn't get to it for a while. Oh, okay, okay. All right. Thanks very much, guys, for being on. We were, It was a great episode. We're really happy to have you on. Yep, thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. All right. Thanks for having us. And... Just See you guys next time. Does Chuck usually say something at the end awesome. that I'm supposed to say? I think Chuck <laughs> says, uh, stay classy, San Diego. Yeah. yeah. Sure that's what he says. <laughs> don't, don't just have a good night. Have an American night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Merrick's not here. Uh, I get it. I get it, AJ. Uh, Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests.